Heavenly Father, we do thank You and we praise You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You wrote it all down, that we can understand clearly what an awesome God You are. We thank You, Lord, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when we want to see You, Lord, we need to look at Your Word and get a clear picture of who You are. Father, I pray, Lord, this morning that we would learn and understand just how we are to live, what, this, what the fruit of righteousness really is, the fruit of salvation. And Father, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You for each person who's here. Give us ears to hear. Be with uh, the children's ministry as well. Be with Warren and Pat as they minister to our kids. We pray and ask all these things in Your holy and Your precious name we pray. May man decrease, Your spirit would increase. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're going to pick up this, this morning in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6, where we left off a couple weeks ago. Just to catch up real quick, I'm not going to take a lot, a lot of time in review, but I think it's important that we understand the context of what Jesus is saying. Two weeks ago, before the Easter service last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Oh, how happy, blessed are they. And He started off by saying, Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. And from a physical point of view, it's very difficult to understand how can somebody be happy who is poor in spirit. But we need to realize that the Beatitudes are written from a spiritual perspective. Oh, our hap- oh how happy are those who understand that they are spiritually bankrupt. Before we can see our need for a Savior, we need to see that we are sinners. And everybody in this room this morning, whether you know it or not, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Amen? And you know what? Until we're convicted of our sin, we don't realize that. And so, oh, how happy are those who realize that they are poor in spirit, that they are spiritually bankrupt apart from Almighty God. Then it goes on from poor in spirit to say, blessed are those who mourn, because once we realize we are spiritually bankrupt, we begin to mourn over our sin. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Once we mourn over our sin and begin to weep over the sin that is in our life, it says we are comforted. And the Comforter, as we all know, the Paracletos that's in the Bible, is the Holy Spirit. So once we realize we're spiritually bankrupt, and we mourn over our sin, then we are comforted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Once we, we realize those things, we then become meek. The Bible says meek is, it means strength under control. Meek is not weak, it's strength under control of the Master. So once we realize that we're spiritually bankrupt, and we mourn over our sin, and we're comforted by the Holy Spirit... We then are strengthened under control of the Master. And then lastly, he says, then we hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's nothing I love more as a pastor than to see people hungering and thirsting to know God better. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The more time we spend in His Word, the the nearer we will draw to Him. And I want to encourage you that we should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. We will then show mercy towards others. We will be pure in heart before God. We will be peacemakers. But then we're going to look at this morning what happens when all those things have happened in our life. It says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. If you are walking with God in a lost and dying world, you are going to be persecuted. That is an absolute fact. And so you know what? As Christians, we need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared for the fact that the world is not going to find us pleasing to them because we're walking with God. Jesus then followed last, last time the, the blesseds with the woes. He said, Woe unto you who are rich. Woe, whose passion, woe to those whose passion is for physical wealth. He said, Woe to those who are full. Those who find satisfaction from the things of this world. He said, Woe to those who laugh now. Now, you know, those who laugh now, what he's talking about is people who laugh about their sin. People that are living a sinful life and laugh about it. You know, it grieves God that we can sin and not be convicted. It says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And you know what? There's a lot of people today, even pastors have fallen into this trap, that are more concerned with popularity with men than faithfulness with God. 
You know, a lot of churches out there have programs to not offend anybody. You know, we want people to come to church. We don't want them to be offended. But the Bible says that the cross of Christ is a stone of offense. It offends us because it makes us see our need for a Savior. And may we never water down the Gospel. And may we never try to just please men and make people feel comfortable. If you go to a church and you never feel convicted, you need to find another church. Amen? Because the Word of God is convicting. The Word of God drives us to our knees and makes us see our need for a Savior. And so, woe to you, he says, when all men speak well of you. So they did for the false prophets. The false prophets, men spoke well of them because they were ear ticklers and they pleased men. But may we never do that. May we never water down the truth so that men will think well of us, but may we be faithful to what God has called us to do. So we're going to pick up this morning, having looked at all that, at verse 27. And I want to just give you a brief overview of what we're going to see this morning as we look at the, the four points. We're going to look at our attitude and actions toward men. We're going to then look at our attitude about ourselves, what it should be according to the Lord. The source of our words and actions, and then lastly, our foundation in the day of judgment. So the title for the message today is True Fruits of Salvation. What are fruits of salvation? What is evidence that you've been born again? How do we know that you're not the person you used to be? How do we know you're not dead in your trespasses and sins anymore? How do we know you're a new creation in Christ? And ultimately, it's not for man to judge, but how can we tell? How do we know? So let's take a look, beginning in verse 27, and look at our actions and attitudes toward men. And I want to say this. Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And you know what? Salt is a preservative and light is something that illuminates. But at the same time, salt can get into a wound and it aggravates and light can reveal sin. And as Christians, when we are salt and light, there are going to be those where God's going to use us to illuminate the Word And there are going to be others where, just by our presence, by us speaking God's Word without compromise, it's going to illuminate the sins of men, and it's not going to be popular. And so God is going to give us, Jesus is going to give us the the rules that we need to understand how to deal with men in this world. Let's take a look in verse 27. And it says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. So love your enemies. As Christians, as people who have been born again, filled with the Spirit of the living God, we are to love those who hate us. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is difficult. It's difficult for me. You know, Leviticus 19.8 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know, the, the Sadducees and the scribes of that day said, You shall love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. It's okay. They were justifying, well, he said love your neighbor. He didn't say love your enemy. Well, the Lord didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And he says, love your enemy. Love those who curse you. Love those who are abusive towards you. And again, not the easiest thing in the world for us to do. They were completely missed the heart of God, those who said, hate your enemy. They didn't understand what the Lord's heart and His passion were. So how do we love our enemy? How do we go about doing that? Well, the first thing the Bible tells us there that we must do to love our enemy is to do good toward them. The Bible says you don't overcome evil with evil, but you overcome evil with good. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. I'll be honest with you. When somebody gets up in my face, there's a part of me that wants to retaliate. My flesh doesn't like it. I want, you know, who do you think you're talking to? That's the way our flesh responds, right? Guy cuts you off and flips you. You know, and there's a part of you that just wants to, oh, hey, who do you think you are? How can you treat me this way? But the Lord is telling us that we are to love them. Not to fight back, but to love back. That a soft answer does turn away wrath. 
Think of a story of a guy that I work with. His name's Rick, and, and, and Rick Franks. And, and we were at work in the San Jose office, and there's a woman over there that's very difficult for anybody to get along with. This woman has a bad reputation, and she's just, she goes after people. She makes up, um, she's bad, she needs Jesus. That's the bottom line. But the, most people are just so repelled by her. And she was spreading rumors about my friend who happens to be a pastor, and he's a great brother. And she was spreading rumors and lies about him and saying things that were evil. About, and people were saying, man, you need to go confront her. And, well, instead, what happened, Rick found out she was going to be taking this test for a promotion, a test that he had recently taken. And instead of going and blasting her for the way she treated him, he went over to her desk and he said, hey, I hear you're going to be taking this test. You know what? I'd love to sit down with you and help you study for it. Why don't we take the next few lunch hours and let's study for the test? She said, really? Oh, that would be great. And so for the next week, Rick spent his lunch hour with her. And then one Friday, I was walking by his desk and he said, hey, Dave, let's pray with her. She's going to be taking that test on Monday. Let's, let's pray for her. And we prayed for her and she passed the test. And now she loves Rick. And what's awesome is a soft answer turns away wrath. You don't overcome evil with evil. Love your enemies, because that's what Jesus did. Amen? And we need to love them too. And it says there, not only do good to them, to, the, to those who curse you, but pray for those who spitefully use you. Prayer. Prayer does not change God's mind. Prayer changes our hearts. Amen? God's mind doesn't need to be changed. He's not a holy Santa Claus up in the sky waiting for you to tell him what to do. God doesn't need your input. Amen? We think, oh God, let me, hey, Lord, let me, let me clue you in on a few things. You know, you might have missed this. Maybe you were asleep. But let me just help you out. God doesn't need my help. Amen? And so often we think, you know, a lot of these churches on TV, oh, you gotta, just gotta claim it. You gotta, we gotta claim nothing. Jesus Christ has the perfect answer for salvation and for hope. Amen? He's a sovereign God who doesn't need my input. Amen? So when I pray, it doesn't, when I pray, it doesn't change God's mind. It changes my heart. It conforms my will to His will. I understand His way. I understand His life. I understand His hope. I understand His design and His plan when I pray. So when you've got somebody that you're struggling with, pray for them. Now, think about this, all of you. Who's the person in your life right now that you're having the greatest difficulty with? Don't look at your wife or your husband, okay? Don't do that. But who's the person that you're struggling with most? Who is it? Is it your boss? Is it a neighbor? Is it a relative? Somebody who just, man, that, that guy's getting on my nerves. And you know what? I, and I know I'm probably the only one that's ever done this. There's some people that thought, man, hell's going to be hot for that guy, right? You know what I mean? I mean, there's a part of us that we think, oh, man, you did, oh, that guy deserved. And you know what? We should never say that's what they deserve because that's what we deserve. Amen? We all deserve it. But be praying for people. And you know what happens? Because down in Southern California, most of you know I still work full time. And when I had a job down south, there was one guy in my office that, man, he really chapped my hide, boy. I, you know, he was an older guy, really arrogant. And whenever I'd be with the, we had a Bible study at work, and whenever we'd be sitting around the table praying, he'd come by and go, oh, that Jesus, he's a great magician. Ah, you know, he'd just be talking about, he'd be just back about Jesus all the time. And, and, and he was an older, and he was real arrogant, and he'd get up in my face, and it was just the grace of God I didn't smack him. You know what I mean? Because, you know, my flesh, I'm like, dude, oh, you ever tried picking up your teeth with a broken arm? I mean, you know, there's that thing sometimes where your flesh wants to rise up and respond. And you know what happened? I was driving home from work one day, and the Lord convicted me. Have you ever prayed for him? Oh, no, I don't think I have prayed for him. I've, I've thought about where he could go, probably, but I have not prayed for him. 
And you know, the sad part is that God just really broke my heart for this guy. And I started praying for him all the way to work and all the way home. And then God put it on my heart to get a list of everybody in my office, about 200 people, and just start praying for every one of them by name. Because we had people in our office whose lives were a mess. There was a guy that was sitting next to me who was cheating on his wife with the woman sitting right next to him. And I knew about it. And he used to just break my heart. And I used to think, man, these guys are so wicked. And then God just said, no, pray for them. And as I began to pray for them, my heart changed toward them. And I'd see them walking down the hall and I'd say, maybe today's the day I'm going to get to share my faith with them. Instead of looking at them and being disgusted by them, my, my heart was broken for them. And to make a long story short, that guy, his name is John Keitling, or some, some, a few people here know him. About six months later, I baptized that guy in my swimming pool. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ and he started coming to my youth group. The guy was in his 60s. And he was, I was a youth pastor and he was coming to youth group every single week. You know what? Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes our hearts. And when you have people that curse you and do evil against you, you know what? We shouldn't be surprised when a dog barks because that's what dogs do. And we shouldn't be surprised when unsafe people act like they're unsaved. Amen? We should look and say, man, that person needs Jesus. You know what? God's divinely put me into their life to have an impact on them. So pray for them. Do good to them. Soft answer turns away wrath. Don't overcome evil with evil. Again, we might even be thinking sometimes that's what that person deserves. But praise the Lord that He doesn't give us what we deserve. Verse 29. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now he's going to deal here with personal retaliation. Again, the, the attitude of what, how you can't treat me this way. I need to re, over, respond in kind. And that's exactly what the world typically does. As followers of Christ, as Christians, we are to treat people the way Jesus treated them. Do we ever see Jesus retaliating for him being personally abused? And the answer is no. The only time we see, when we see Jesus get angry, it's because of people had turned his father's house into a den of thieves. People had taken what had been meant to be used for the kingdom of God and had used it for their own gain. That's when we see the Lord get angry. But when they misused him, when they mistreated him, he didn't react that way. Again, our flesh reaction is, it's my stuff. You know, it's not fair. You shouldn't be taking my stuff. You need to pay me back with interest. But Jesus is calling each one of us to completely surrender our personal rights. Completely. You know, we always want our rights. We want our will. We want to stand up for ourselves. The Bible says, deny self. The world says, esteem self. You know, your problem is, you don't have enough self-esteem. That's the biggest lie I've ever heard in my life. You know what? Kids don't need more... Se- my kids esteem themselves way too stinking much. That's the problem. I didn't have to teach any of them to say mine. They all, knew, they all figured that out. They're all very selfish. They all esteem themselves way too much. And your problem is not that you don't esteem yourself enough. It's that you don't deny yourself enough. Amen? You know, the psychologists will tell you, well, that's your problem. You, you, know, you, need, to, you need to get in touch with your inner child. No, your, your inner child is a sinner. Amen? And you need to be saved. And we need to, we need to deny self. And take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ. It's not that I need to esteem self more. And He's calling us to deny our rights. Deny, You know what? And everything we have is the Lord's anyway. Amen? You know, if somebody takes something from me, so what? It's God's. If He wants me to have it, He'll replace it. And too often, we're, we're so busy storing up stuff that's all going to burn anyway. We're fighting over deck chairs in the Titanic, right? It's a sinking ship. This is not our home. It's not going to outlast this life. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. 
And so if somebody comes up and they smile, he says, if, he, if they strike you, turn the other cheek. And you know why we turn the other cheek? Because it doesn't matter what happens to me in the temporary. It doesn't matter what happens to me on this planet. It's all temporary. It's all going to burn. It's all going to fade. We must remember that everything we have belongs to Him. That this is not our home. To hold on to the things of this world lightly. And again, to hold tightly only to that which is permanent. A call to never allow holding tightly to the temporal to be a stumbling block for the eternal. I love the, the, the anagram analogy. J-O-Y. How do you know joy? Jesus first, others second, yourself last. If somebody comes and takes something from me, again, it all belongs to God. Let them have it. Let God be glorified. That's not how the world acts, but we're not of the world. Amen? And everything we have belongs to Him. Verse 31. But again, give to everyone. Don't ask for it back. Boy, that's difficult. We want to write out a contract. You know, we want to, we want to make sure that, that we have... Everything in writing and things are given back a certain way. And you know what? I'm, not, I'm going to embarrass my wife for a second. We, we had a landlord a couple years ago and we moved out of our house. And anybody who's ever been to my house, you know that my wife is probably the cleanest person on the planet. I, and if anybody's been to my house, you probably agree. I mean, she's, it's ridiculous. Almost too much, okay? But my house never... And so when we moved out of this house, we, she'd gotten to know the landlord really well. And, and we'd given him a $2,000 deposit. And we were moving into a condo that we had bought over in San Jose. And... When we moved out, my wife spent several days cleaning the entire house, making it spotless. I mean, it, it was immaculate. And so we move out, and we, we get to our new house, and I'm waiting for the check from the landlord. And my wife had talked to him and gave him orange juice when he'd come to mow the lawn, talked to him about the Lord. And he'd always talk about what a wonderful family we were. Well, I call him up one day, and he's like, I'm like, you know, I've been waiting. I don't know where the check is, you know, the $2,000. Oh, you're not getting any money back. The house was a pigsty. It was, a, it was a disaster. I had to bring people in to clean it and paint. And Oh, now, I'll be honest with you. I got in my... I, oh. Because my wife, starts, my wife starts crying, and now I'm being the husband, and I'm like, you know what, pal? Have you ever tried picking up your teeth with a broken arm? Right? I mean, I, I, I was getting upset. And I wanted it like, you know, vengeance is mine. I already pay, says Dave. I mean, I was, I was wanting to go get... You know, you're not going to talk about my wife that way. And I got upset. And you know what? It was awesome because my wife was initially upset, but then later she wrote him a letter and she just said, you know what, it's God's money. If you want it, keep it. And she said, I don't want to blow our testimony for the sake of $2,000. It's not worth it. And I was like, wow. Praise the Lord. You know, that's my wife. You know what I mean? Amen? And that's the way it should be. If they take it from you, give it to them. Why? Because will $2,000 matter in eternity? In eternity? The answer is no. If they take stuff from it, let them have it, because it all belongs to God. May it be used for His glory. Verse 31. And just as you want men to do to you, do also likewise to them. The Bible says, If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is calling us to esteem others greater than ourselves, to treat them the way that we want to be treated. Loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, pray for those who use you, turning the other cheek, giving generously to those who act selfishly, esteeming others greater than yourself. These are true fruits of salvation. This is a sign of someone who's given their life to Jesus Christ. This is a sign of someone whose focus is setting their mind on things above, not on things of this earth, as it says in Colossians 3.2. This is only possible when you become a new creation in Christ. This does not happen by striving in your flesh. It can only happen when God touches and transforms your life. Verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? 
For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Now, if we are able to live lives that will glorify and honor God in the name of our Savior, we must go above and beyond what the world does. You know what? As Christians, we should be different. The Bible says the world is dead in their trespasses and sins, and we've been made alive in Christ. I've used this analogy before, but if you went down to the morgue and you were standing in the room with all the corpses, hopefully there'd be something different about you than everybody else in the room. Amen? They'd be able to go, oh, something different, right? Because you're not dead, right? And spiritually, it's the same as true. The world is dead. The world is looking for answers. We have it. It's Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. And He's saying we must go above and beyond. We, we must love those not love only those who love us, or give only to those that will give in return. But true fruits of salvation is loving those who hate you. It's giving to those who cannot repay. It's serving in anonymity. You know, one of the things I love about this church, you know, what most of you know, we just started a year and a half ago. We came as a handful of people, and I have a burden for Santa Cruz County. By the way, we're not going anywhere. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon, and I believe this is where I'm supposed to be till the Lord returns. So we're going to be here, and God help us to reach Santa Cruz County and make this place Holy Cross once again. It's what Santa Cruz means. It means Holy Cross. And may this place that's turned godless become a godly place once again. And that can happen if the people in this room are sold out for Jesus Christ and we become contagious. Amen? And you know what? The, the passion and the heart of those that, that come, I prayed, Lord, bring the servants first. And He has. And you know what? I love the way so many people in this church just serve with anonymity. Nobody even knows who they are or what they're doing. Because they're not doing it for the praise of men, but to honor God. And they're not doing it to be repaid by men, but they're doing it for God's glory. Denying, denying self, esteeming others, glorifying God. These truly are fruits of salvation. When you've given your life to Him, you're going to be different. It says here in verse 35, But love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. You will be sons of the Most High. The important thing is not that we are vindicated before our enemies, that we be, but that we become more like Jesus. You know what? There's a, a word, a, the Word of Faith movement says, well, if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, let me just make it real clear, that's noise. You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. That's a lie, okay? Because here's the reality. Paul was kind of sick, as my dad read before the service. Paul went through some difficulties. He had a thorn in his flesh all his life. Sometimes we go through difficulties so that God will conform us more to His image. So that we will learn and understand not to trust in ourselves anymore. That we will realize how frail our flesh really is. That we will be driven to our knees and conform more to His image. So praise the Lord, as it says in James 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because those things will conform you more to the image of God. You've been laid off at work, praise the Lord, God's going to use it for His glory. You just found out that you've been diagnosed with cancer, praise the Lord, God's going to use it for His glory. You're going through difficulties at work or whatever else may be happening in your home, Praise the Lord. God is faithful. He's sovereign. He knows you're not going through it alone. And He will use it for His glory if you will let Him. And you will be sons of the Most High. It doesn't get any better than that. Amen? I'm a child of the King. My best friend created the universe. I, man, it doesn't get any better than that. We're going to heaven, you guys. I mean, read the end of the Bible and guess what? We win. Amen? That's what the Bible says. And we're going to stand before Almighty God. We're going to be in His presence forevermore. And so when trials come in this world, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. It says there, for he is even kind to the unthankful and the evil. 
The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's kind to those who never said thank you. Jesus died for us. We we're in the midst of our sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He died and He, and he does good even to those who are evil. Verse 36, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Be merciful, not giving others what they deserve, just as our Heavenly Father did not give us what we deserve. He gave out of the abundance of His love and His grace and His infinite mercy. Verse 37. It says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. The word there, judge not. Now this is, I want to say this real quick. This, to me, is one of the most misinterpreted verses sometimes. You start to come up to somebody, and as a brother in Christ, and you're doing it in love, and you confront them with their sin, and they say, hey man, don't be judging me. Don't be judging me. The Bible says judge not. No, don't be judging me. Right? And you know what? The word there for judge, in the Greek, means to judge to place in a place of permanent condemnation. And that's true. We're not to go up to somebody and say, man, you're going to fry in hell. Because the reality is that person can receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as long as we're breathing that in and out, it's not too late to be born again. Amen? I've prayed with people on their deathbed to accept Jesus Christ. And people say, oh, that doesn't seem fair. No, it seems merciful. Amen? That they don't, oh, I can li- you can live like the devil for 90 years and God will still... Yes, He will. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and He loves us that much. Praise the Lord. I'm glad He's that merciful of a God, aren't you? Amen? Aren't you glad He's gracious and loving and merciful? And I'm glad I don't sin so much. It was up too late. You sin too much, you're done. I'm glad that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But we are to judge with spiritual discernment. And when we judge, we're not to judge to bring condemnation, but we're to judge to bring restoration. When you come to somebody, don't judge to condemn them and drive them away from God, but bring judgment to say, you know what, bro? I've seen this in your life and it concerns me. My heart is broken. And judge so that we might bring restoration not condemnation. When there's church discipline, which you don't see in a lot of churches anymore today. Oh man, we can't, di- oh, we can't, we can't talk to people about their sin. We gotta, oh man, they might not tithe anymore. You know, so what? Where God guides, God provides. Amen? And you know what? We're, and uh, you know what? I've never asked you guys for a dime and I never will because if I ask you for the money, if you're the one that's, that's doing it, then you have to sustain it. If God's the one doing it, then God will sustain it and we don't need your money. Amen? You, you give as God calls you to give. But in John 7, it says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Philippians 1 says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense until the day of Jesus Christ. So what is righteous judgment? It's never self-righteous and hypocritical. And we're going to see that in just a second. It's never me coming and saying, Oh, I'm perfect, and you're not. That's not it. And we're not to judge that way. It always begins with self. The word condemn not there means, again, signifies once and for all final judgment. God has called us not to judge and to get and to condemn, but from these verses, to forgive and to give. Forgive others as Christ forgave you. How much has Christ forgiven you? Everything. There it is. Everything. And you know what? How much should we forgive others? You know, we get in the place sometimes, oh man, I can't for- I've forgiven that guy so many times, I can't forgive him anymore. You know what? Forgive others as Christ forgave you. Aren't you glad that that God hasn't done that in your life? He's a gracious and a loving and a merciful God. Forgive others as Christ forgave you. It says give. It says there in verse 37, it says give. Give and it will be given to you. 
Now, this is another verse taken way out of context. Now, if you just put $50 in here and have a little seed faith, then God will give you back a 1000 You know what? I don't want my reward here on earth. How about you? Amen? I've got a heavenly reward. One that's, I don't want to collect up stuff where it's going to rust and it can fade and it can break. And you know what? We don't give so that we can get. We give because of what we've already been given. Amen? We give because God has given us everything. If I gave the Lord all that I have, it wouldn't even begin to give Him back for what He's already given me. But what's awesome to me is that as we give to the Lord, He does take it and use it and multiply it for His glory, not for mine. You know, the world makes the mistake of thinking if we give, then God will give me so much and I'll be so glorified. That's not what it's about. Deny self, not glorify self. Don't give so we can get. Give that God might be glorified. And the giving here is not just talking about finances, but our time. You know what? Every one of you in this room, if you're a born-again Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, God has called you to ministry. Every one of you. Not just Pastor Dave and you know, Javier, the worship that Everyone in this room. Why? Because He didn't save you so you could be a pew potato. Amen? He didn't save you, oh, big fat sheep, oh, getting fed, getting fed. Getting. You know, the Dead Sea's dead because it's got an inlet and no outlet. And the reality is that your work environment, you're the only, you may be the only Jesus those people are ever going to see. The people in your neighborhood, that's a divine appointment. God put you there for a reason. And we give. What are you investing in? What do you invest your money in? What do you invest your time in? You know, sometimes we can watch 20 hours a week of TV and four minutes a week praying for our neighborhood. 20 hours a week playing golf on the golf course and 10 minutes sharing our faith. What are we investing in? The Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure? What's important to you? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all, this, all the other things will be added unto you. Amen? And so often it's like, oh, we've got to give an hour. You know, these chairs are getting kind of hard. We've been here an hour already, you know? I mean, sometimes we just, we, you know, we don't want to give to God. We view it as a, an inconvenience. So what are you investing in? Personal comfort, worldly pursuits, or the kingdom of God? I know for a fact that when each one of us stands before God we will regret not having given Him more. Amen? Every one of us. Ah, oh, should have done more. Should have done more. None of us will say, should have played golf more. You know, should have, should have watched more TV. Missed that last episode of ER. You know, that's not going to happen when we get to heaven. We're going to say, man, I should have done more for the kingdom of God. Give unto the Lord. Now we're going to look at the attitudes about ourselves. Again, true fruits of salvation. Look at verse 39. And he spoke a parable to them and said, Can a blind lead the blind? Will they, both, will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Can the blind lead the blind? Jesus had referred to the Pharisees as blind guides. Can the Pharisees blinded with pride and prejudice and bigotry lead blind people into the right way? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? That's what he's saying. Those who are led by worldly opinion, intellect, are themselves blind and are led by the blind and will perish with the world that sits in darkness. The world disciple means a learner. As disciple of Christ, we can expect no greater than he received from the world. To truly be his disciples, we are called to be like him, dead to this world, servants of all, doing the will of the Father. But there are blind guides out there. And I want to just encourage you as your pastor. I'm concerned because there are, there are blind guides on every street corner. Those who follow any other teacher will be like his teacher. If you're following Muhammad, guess where Muhammad is? He's dead and he's burning in hell. And guess what? Everybody who follows him is going to the same place. 
Those guys who crashed into the tower at, on 9-11, who thought they were going to a place of mansions with 70 virgins, said, whoops, that's not what happened. Because whoever you follow, that's where you're going to be. That's where you're going to spend eternity with. Muhammad is dead in his sin, and so will his followers be. Those who follow Darwin, right? You know, yeah, I used to be a monkey. Great-grandfather was a monkey. Right? Lightning hit a puddle and scratched a freckle and started flying. Now it's me. That's what I believe. If you're following Darwin, you're going to end up where Darwin is. You're going to end up separated from God. What about Freud? Sigmund Freud. Everybody's in love with their mother. I, you know, that's noise, man. I, you know, I took psychology class. I'm sitting there listening to my teacher. You've got to be kidding me. You know, the id and the ego and the superego. And Freud, he's the father. The father of what? He's in hell, separated from God. And those who follow after him and seek after him and listen to his counsel. The Bible says, walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Amen? As Christians, you know what? Pastor Dave can be opinionated sometimes. So here it is. You should not be going to a secular psychologist for counsel because they have no answers for you. Some of you are probably going to want to come talk to me after. That's okay. I'm not going to water down the tree. Here's the, Psalm 1 says, walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. What? I need Freud. I need dead people who didn't know God to give me counsel. I don't think so. I need to give them counsel. I need to go to the psychologist, man. You need Jesus. Amen? The answer is not worldly wisdom. The answer is not the, the, the wisdom of men, the intellect of men. It's not from books from a bunch of unbelievers. The truth is that the only place that we can find answers is in the Word of God. Amen? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Joseph Smith, Mormon church, those who follow him, dead in their sin. Why? Because he was a blind man leading blind people into a ditch. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. And many people are. You know, I have people I know that I, that I care about that are Mormons, and you know what? They're sincere and they're sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong. Pastor Dave, you're naming names. You shouldn't talk about the Mormon. Let me ask you a question. If it's teaching a lie, should we not tell people that it's a lie? If somebody comes to your door and tries to tell you that Joseph Smith was a prophet, that's a lie. No, he's not. And you know what? Joseph Smith is dead. And those who follow him are headed into a ditch. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. And there's no other path which can lead men to heaven but through Jesus Christ alone. Amen? No other way, guys. And so when someone comes and tells you they're blind men leading blind people into a ditch, who's your master this morning? Who do you serve? Who are you following? Amen. And that should be Jesus. Amen? And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, but you don't have to leave here without Him. Amen? Better than the American Express card. Don't leave home without it. Well, don't leave earth without Jesus Christ. Amen? We need Him. We need to know Him. Verse 41. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank that is in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, our attitude about ourselves should be one of constant self-examination about the sin in our lives. You know, there's a, there's a cheap grace thing that's going around in the church. Well, well, I prayed a prayer, and I've been born again. I don't ever have to worry about my sin because it's all paid for. And the reality is that that's true, that our sin has been paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, He said, It is finished. To Talisti. It's been paid for. All our sin, past, present, and future. But when we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. Amen? And through that conviction, it should drive us to a place of being restored in our relationship with God. 
And the reason these men were hypocrites is because they did not examine their own life because they were so busy examining everybody else's. Now, you're a sinner, man. I saw what you did. Oh, you know, everybody's walking around pointing everybody else. And he's saying here, you hypocrites. You're looking and trying to pull the speck out of someone else's eye and you've got a beam sticking out of your eye. I love the Lord's, you know, just illustrations. They're great. Can you imagine you've got a big beam kind of walking in? Hey, man, you've got a speck in your eye. Oh, come on. Dude, you've you got a beam growing out of your face, right? And you're trying to pick a speck out of my eye? And it's interesting to me that the word for beam and speck, they're made out of the same material. And quite often, the sin that we see so evident in other people's lives is typically the sin that we're struggling with ourselves. We can pick it up. Oh, that guy's struggling with that. Well, how do you know? Because you're struggling with it too. And quite often, you've got the beam in your eye and you're trying to pick the speck out of somebody else's. And he's saying, hypocrite, examine your own life. Examine your own heart. Must be one of constant self-examination in the light of God's Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know what will conform us more to His image? Spending more time with Him. The more time you spend in His Word, the more you're going to be convicted about sin. The more you're convicted about sin, the more you're going to be conformed to His image. It's that sanctification, being set apart process, becoming more like Jesus Christ. It prepares us to serve others, and it, con- and it conforms us more and more to, him- to be like Him. The Pharisees condemned and criticized others to make themselves look good. As Christians, we ought to examine ourselves that we might minister to others instead of trying to make ourselves look good. Jesus chose us for an illustration of the eye because the eye is a very sensitive part of our body. Amen? Anybody here ever, ever, ever had something in your eye? Raise your hand. Now, don't you want someone coming up there like really gently? Usually like blowing your eye and you're, you know, you're doing one of these. You know, you know, you know, and you're all, you know, because it's sensitive. And the Lord's saying when someone else is struggling with sin, you don't come after them with a pickaxe. Right? Oh, something in your eye. Hold still. I mean, that, but sometimes as Christians, that's what we want to do. We want to come after somebody and we want to you know, mow them down. Oh man, you're struggling? Get over here. Let me tell you, I'll help you. You know? That's, the church is not, it's not a police station where people come to be busted and thrown into prison. The church is a hospital where people come to be healed. Amen? To be made well. If you're struggling with something this morning, I want you to know that God loves you and He so desires to forgive you. That you can take a million steps away from God and it's only one step back. He loves you so much that He'd rather die than live without you. That's the God that we serve. Amen? And so, if you're struggling with sin, know that we are to use patience and sensitivity. We're to reach out and touch people gently. Again, not using the pickaxe, trying to mow people down for the kingdom of God. Oh man, you're a sinner, let me help you. Verse 43. I want to talk about the two trees. The source of our words. We're almost done here. The source of our words. It says, for a good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears good but a ba- does, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Excuse me. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil out of his evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of a heart the mouth speaks. So, as, as the true fruits of salvation, what is the source of our words? What is the source of our actions? True faith in Christ changes the life and produces good fruit that glorifies God. Everything in nature reproduces after its own kind, and this is true also in the spiritual realm. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Bad fruit comes from a bad tree. In Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8, Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. While we're not to judge others, we can look and see if there's fruit in the life of another believer. 
bear fruits worthy of repentance. If someone's repented, their life will change. The word repent means to turn. It means I used to be going this way, and now I'm going this way. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry and then continuing in that action. Repentance means I'm grieved and I'm broken by it and turning away from it. And so we are to bear fruit worthy of repentance that shows that there's been a change in my life. If I come up and give Jesse a forearm shiver in the front row, hey, bro, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it again, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it again, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. And that's not repentance, amen? And it's not repentance to tell God, well, you know, things are difficult, I'll cry out to you right now, but then go on and live our life the same old way and never change. Repentance produces good fruit. And out of the overflowing, or out of the abundance of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You know what? You ever want to find out what's in somebody's heart, sit back and listen to them talk for a while. If you want to know what's in someone's heart, just sit back and listen. You know, it's interesting that God gave us two ears and one mouth. We probably ought to use them proportionally. Amen? You know, we got twice as many ears, we got mouths. We probably ought to listen a lot more than we talk. And you know what? If we listen to somebody for any length of time, you'll find out what's in their heart. Words don't slip out. Now, I'll go out on sales calls and a guy finds him a pastor and he's been cussing for 20 minutes. I start, you know, bro, I'm offended by that. I'm a Christian. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm a Christian too. You know, that Christian face comes on. <laughs> oh, yeah, praise the Lord, brother. God bless you. Know, and, and, you know, that, those words that were coming out of his mouth before were not slipping out. That's a sign of our heart. Out of the abundance, out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You want to find out somebody's heart? Listen to their words. Evil hearts produce evil speech. They produce profane words, pride, anger, self-centeredness, slander, ungodly speech, false teacher speech, false doctrine that can produce only false righteousness. When you hear a false teacher, you know what they do? More often than not, they magnify themselves. It's all about their ministry. The worldwide ministry of... And again, I've said this before. You ever walk in a place that says the worldwide ministry got his guy's name? Run out of the building and pray for that guy. Amen? That's a false teacher. They exploit people for money. Those who follow them will never experience a changed life. Beware of any man who preaches from his need. You know, we really have a need this morning. Right? We really have a need. we got this building project and we just we need you to dig down deep. Well, stop it. You know what? That's not the pastor's job. He's not supposed to come in so you can feed his need. He's to minister to you. pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. How does that happen? By teaching you guys the Word of God. Feeding you the meat of the Word. Not watering down the Gospel so you're not offended. Teaching the whole counsel of God. What comes out of a heart that's been changed? People praising God. Glorifying His name. Lifting Him up. A changed heart loves to sing praise songs. You know what? You ever go over to Hobbs' house, that worship practice, those guys, I think they come straight to church from worship practice sometimes. I mean, they just like worship all night. Why? Because it's a privilege. They love it. Joe gave me some CDs. Last night, I was stu- most of you guys know I'm weird. I'm a night owl. So I study in my office on Saturday night because I work full time. I want to spend time with my kids. And I typically will study till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And I just listened to this worship CD for eight hours straight. And I want to tell you something. It was awesome. I would catch myself worshiping. Why? Because out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. What is it that comes out of your mouth? It's a reflection of what's inside of us. And you know what? As Christians, there's nothing we can do to praise God enough. And man, we should love to worship and to honor and to lift up His name. And then lastly, our foundation on Judgment Day. I know we've gone a little over, but we started late because it was daylight savings or whatever it is. We move from two trees to two builders and two foundations. Let's look at these last few verses. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will... 
show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against his house, he could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like the man who built his house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and ruin of that house was great. Here we see our foundation on Judgment Day. Matthew 7:21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practicers of lawlessness. When Judgment Day comes and each one of us stands before God, knowing about Jesus won't be enough. If you just know about Jesus, that won't be enough. If you just anal- Most of you guys know I was a youth pastor for a long time. And you know what? One of my favorite analogies is, you know, I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I can tell you where he went to school. He went to North Carolina. He wears number 23. He's won six championships. And you know, I can tell you a lot about Michael Jordan. He's on covers of Wheaties. He's been in some movies. You know, and you know what, though? If I got in an elevator with Michael Jordan, that guy would have no idea who I am. I know a lot about him, but I don't have a relationship with him. And there's a lot of people that know a lot about Jesus. Oh, yeah, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Yeah, you know, and yeah, he's a good man, a lighted teacher. Oh, yeah, I know. And they know a lot about him. Maybe they were taught in Sunday school. Maybe they've been going to church for a long time. But it's not about knowing about Jesus Christ. We must know him in a personal and an intimate way. Be married to him as his bride. Amen? And if your foundation is on anything else, going to church won't be good enough. You know what? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than jumping in the ocean makes you a fish. Amen? Just because you come to church. Coming to church is a good thing. But you know what? There's a lot of people that just go to church every week, and it's a religious country club. You know, we've been going there, and we've always gone there, so we'll go. Yeah, it's Sunday. We're supposed, you know, we've got brunch afterward. And you know, it's just something that they do, but they don't have a relationship with God. You know what? Going to, knowing about Jesus won't be good enough. Going to church won't be good enough. And doing good works. Well, I give to charity. I'm a wonderful guy. You know, I'm, real, I'm a philanthropist. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, you know I, and when kids come by, I buy candy bars from them. And, you know, sometimes I let people go in front of me in traffic. I mean, shouldn't that be good enough? I mean, good works will not get us into heaven. Knowing about Jesus will not get us into heaven. Going to church on Sunday will not get us into heaven. Why? Because we've still got a sin problem. And if God allows one sin into heaven, He's got earth part two. Amen? If you lost one sin in heaven, we got earth all over again. So there can be no sin in heaven, but all of us are sinners. So guess what? We need to have our house built upon the only foundation that will last. And it's not Mormonism, and it's not Muhammad, and it's not, it's not wealth, and it's not anything else that's out there. There's only one foundation, and the foundation, it says right here, is the rock. And who's the rock? Jesus Christ. And only if you're founded on Him, when that storm comes, and, the, and the, what we're seeing here is that This is a picture of final judgment. And the rain that comes is that day when we stand before God. The house represents our life. The rain represents divine judgment. If your house is built upon the rock, Jesus Christ, if you've trusted God, you've repented of your sin, you're walking with Him, you're trusting His grace, not in your works, and you will stand in the day of judgment. And you know what will happen when you're standing before Him? You'll be standing before Almighty God. You'll be there in your sin. And when you're about to be cast where you deserve to go, Jesus is going to step forward and say, that's okay because He's with me. That's the only reason I'm getting in is because I'm with Jesus. Amen? Because my feet are on the rock 
of Jesus Christ. If your foundation is your good works, if your foundation is your popularity with men, if your foundation is an empty religious relationship, if your foundation is your own righteousness, all of that's going to fail and it won't be good enough on Judgment Day. It won't get you into heaven because you still have an SIN problem. So in closing, the worship team will come on up. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the rock, through repentance, will stand under the reign of divine judgment. Salvation produces good works, not the other way around. Good works do not produce salvation. Salvation produces good works. Amen? Oh, I'm good. No, that doesn't make you saved. Being saved produces the good works. So let me summarize what we talked about. Our attitude and actions toward men. We should be loving our enemies, esteeming others greater than ourselves. Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Give to those who cannot repay. Serve with anonymity. Don't judge or condemn. Forgive others as Christ forgave you. Our attitude about ourselves. We should be broken over our sin. We should deny self. We should be in a constant state of self-examination of our own heart before God. Through the Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The source of our words and actions. The Bible says out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. What's in our heart will be coming out of our mouth. And lastly, our foundation on Judgment Day is standing upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Not popularity with men, not an empty religion or self-righteousness. It can only come from standing on Him. Amen? And you know what? Praise the Lord for the Word. And this is how, this is, these are true fruits of salvation. If we've been born again, this should be a picture of us. And if it's not, ask God for help. Amen? Lord, help me to be this person. Help me to love my enemies. Help me to deny myself. Help me, Lord, to fall in love with you and seek you more than anything else this world has to offer. And that's a prayer that he'll answer. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord. You're such an awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that these are not works that we try to attain in our own ability. But, Lord, it's coming to the end of ourself and realizing that without you we can do nothing. So, Father, we just ask for a fresh pouring of your Holy Spirit upon each one of us here. That, Lord, we would go from this place and walking in the power of your Spirit. That we would love our enemies. Mm-hmm. Lord, that we would have a burden for those who don't know you. That, Lord, we would deny self instead of esteeming self. That we would not judge and be condemning of others. But, Lord, that our heart would break for others. And we would give to them. And we would serve them. And, Lord, I pray that our foundation would be firmly upon you and upon nothing else. And that out of our mouth would flow torrents of rushing li- living water. Father God, as your Holy Spirit uses us as a conduit. Father God, we thank you, we praise you, Lord. We glorify and honor your name. You're such an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Why don't we stand and close the worship song. Amen.